Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod here in Washington, D.C. with the new general manager of the Washington Wizards, Tommy Shepard. How does that sound, Tommy? You know, I'm kind of looking around, pinching myself a little bit today. You know, those titles get thrown around and, and obviously I'm very humbled. I'm very grateful. But let's be honest, the only title that matters is the one Toronto has. And that's really where this all starts. Today was a great day as we, we announce ourselves and move forward to the, to the NBA and to the rest of the basketball world, what we're all about. Now we got to go out and put action behind the words. And that's what the most exciting part is. Uh, there's a lot I want to get to with you, Tommy. I want to start here though first. Uh, Bradley Beal, he's eligible to sign a three-year extension on uh, July Friday, 26th. July 26th. <laughs> uh, three years, $111 million you can, you can offer to him on Friday, and, and, and that's your plan, right? You're going to come in. I think the biggest thing is for people to understand that that's out of respect to Bradley, that that's the first moment we can do that, right. and we want to make sure he hears it from us. Our commitment to him has never wavered. And I want to say this, Bradley's commitment to us has never wavered. It's been fantastic uh, just to, to watch him since the season was over and how he was able to help us actively recruit to, to make sure Thomas Bryan knew, hey, this is the place for you, for Bradley to step in in the draft room and look at the players that we were looking at and weigh in on things and being able to help Mr. Leonsis through this entire process and, and all his input. You know, I think he's always felt the love. And this is, I promise, this is an internal business uh, transaction that we're, we're doing with Bradley. But certainly to the world, we want everyone to understand that this foundation piece, Bradley Beal, uh, the person that he is, you know, I think one day he might be in the Hall of Fame and still be a better person, but he's very much of everything we're trying to move forward and build around. It would, it would involve Bradley. So you go in there with him now, and listen, he can, he's got a lot of options. He could do three year deal, he could do one, two, he can do nothing, he can become all NBA. He can make all NBA next season and be eligible for a, a super max, and he could do a, a big five-year, two hundred fifty million dollar deal that summer. He could do. He's got lots of options over the next couple of years. Or, and, and in talking to Mark Bartlestein, his agent, I know you've talked to Mark. Ted Leonsis told me that he went and spent time with Mark last week to just lay out what his vision was here and how things mm-hmm. were going to move forward with the front office and the organization. But you know, Bradley Beal's twenty six. He's in the prime of his career. John Wall is probably going to miss all of next season with the Achilles injury. And it's a roster around him that's a developing roster. You've got a lot of young players. You've got some assets you've gathered up. Uh, you've got a first-round pick who you're excited about. But for a player who wants to win and wants to know he can win in Washington, you're going to you, – you tell Brad what now? Well, first look at what happened today and all the commitment that you have. To be successful in professional sports, it starts with a commitment from ownership. You can have the very best people. If you don't have good owners, you're not going to be successful. And the ownership group here, the partners that Mr. Leonsis has involved, I think the level of their commitment to being successful for the whole 360 of a player has been unparalleled. And, and it's witnessed by their commitment today and the investments that they're making. I would show Bradley, hey, we went full scale to make sure we have the very best health care, full scale to have the best team services, full scale to have the very best opportunities off the floor, away from basketball, life after basketball, all those things 
besides what you already are familiar with, which we've had success here. Bradley came here. He's a two-time All-Star. He definitely last season felt the pressure, uh, you know, when, when John Wall went down with an injury. Bradley carried the team. He earned that All-Star uh, trip himself. You know, uh, we, we didn't have a lot of help around him at that time. We went through a lot of changes. Through it all, Bradley was always, always an anchor, always somebody that absolutely, what can I do? How can I help this team? And, you know, I think we want to always applaud that. We want to recognize that. And that's certainly on July 26th. That's just, that's when the calendar tells us that's the first moment we can offer this extension to him. And then we sit back and what we have to do is show Bradley every single day, this is the place for you, for your future. And one day you're going to look up in those rafters and hopefully we see your number up there and we're going to celebrate a title that you helped bring here. That's the vision we have to lay out, but we have to show them that their words Okay, that's one thing, but actions behind that words, that's the only way this is going to move. He's got two years left on his deal. You you know in this league, Tommy, when people sense blood in the water, <laughs> um, uh, I think you, you would know better than anybody. I'm not sure there's a player who people want to pick up the phone as much and and knock on your door and see if he's available or see what it might take. I know a lot of that went on this off season, and by every account I've got, they were all told no thank you. Right. And I think that's exactly it. For me, you know, I've never had any problem ignoring the noise that goes on around us. We just put our head down, do the job that's asked to do and you know, we've identified Bradley as a cornerstone to this franchise right there with John Wall. You know, John Wall he earned that Supermax contract. Injury injuries don't care what you make or who you are, they happen. And that took John off the floor and that certainly changed the way we were able to play. And Bradley adapted and rose and, and did a fantastic job. We have to put more talent out on the floor next to him. I think this summer was a nod to that. We had to kind of reboot, right? We had to go get some younger players and start to develop players that we can put around him. And we had to reset our financial future to make sure that we have opportunities to add players in the future, major players through free agency, be, hopefully be able to reward all the players that we develop and have a plan that's discernible to not just to us, not just to our players, but to our fans. They see that, hey, this makes sense. Each transaction, I think, in, in the future will all make sense as we explain to people this is what we're all about. And the ability for us to deliver a, a really exciting brand of basketball to the D.C. fans, well, they've already seen what Bradley Beal can do. And I think they saw some from what Thomas Bryant was able to do. Now it's up to Rui, it's up to Admiral to come in as young players and prove their worth. The players that we acquired through trade, I think there's great opportunities for Mo Bogner to, to endear himself to fans here, Isaac Bonga, Jamario Jones. And I think when you add a guy like Davies Bertans and, and C.J. Miles, and we added some quality vets to go with those young players to help with the lumps that we're probably going to look at a couple times next year. The one thing I think it seems with Bradley is, and, and I know you've addressed this, and, and it's we'll talk about it as part of a bigger vision going forward, that Bradley wants to play with character guys. He Absolutely. wants to be around high-character guys. And, and, and it seems as though that's your promise to him now is that's what we're seeking out, right? That's yep. that's what will change here. And I don't even know. Promises can be uh, – they're, they're very simple to make and hard to keep. We can't be about that. we got to show them. And I think we showed that through the draft. And it was really neat to see when we were in Las Vegas, Bradley and John, they sat courtside and looked at all of our rookies. They looked at all of our players that we had around. And they didn't come to just uh, to, to cheer them on. They come to see what kind of players they are. And I noticed watching Rui and watching Admiral, they were looking over there watching 
those players watched them. They carried themselves differently. They knew this is time to, sh- to prove themselves. And I think the players that we onboarded so far, they match the criteria you just laid out. Um, they match the criteria we're going to demand of everybody that comes here. Be hardworking, high character, and, and have a resume that says you're about winning. And we can develop that. That's easy. I can't say enough about Coach Brooks and his staff and what a fantastic partner he was through this whole entire uh, time, Adrian. His ability to, to really regalvanize the troops and say, hey, we're going to be young, exciting, hungry, hardworking. Uh, we're going to be that team everybody hates to play. That That's not just words. That's got to be followed up by actions. And he's putting things in place right now that I think we'll see in the season. Hey, this is going to be a, a vision that every player in the NBA is going to take notice of and want to be here. Tommy, when when the change came when Ernie Grenfeld was let go and you were made interim general manager, you have no idea how long the search process is going to take. You have no long – you don't know how long your key card is going to work in the building. You just kind of come <laughs> in and work at it. When, when you were able to sit down with Ted Leonsis and, and talk about, yeah, short-term what you needed to do, getting ready for the draft and all the things that were going on then, exit meetings, season's ending – and then longer term, making the case to uh, be a candidate for the job. How do you separate out when you sit down with Ted? You were here for 16 years, mm-hmm. and, and, and there were successes in the 16 years, playoffs and, 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 and all NBA backcourt um, runs in the playoffs, and, and then there were reasons why change was made. How are you able to reconcile your time here, the role you played in, successes, failures, things you want to do better, and, hey, I'm going to do it differently. I've got a different vision um, for what this should look like. Well, I think the easiest way is by just by actions, not words, and, and showing Ted the plan that I had really was involved an awful lot more data collection, a lot more value-driven ideas that we had to, to identify players that we really should spend a lot of time focusing on for the future. I don't think that I spent a lot of time looking back. I don't think that ever pays. You learn from the past. You don't live there. And I think the best driver for us moving forward is, hey, what do we do well? How can we amplify that? And where are gaps? How can we supply help to those gaps? And this is a result of those conversations. You know, a book that really resonated with me was actually by General McChrystal. Stanley McChrystal was the team of teams. And I thought, how can we bring that idea to life in basketball it seemed like it's a no-brainer to have everybody in real time some of the best thinkers in a room whenever we could be but the way this business is run anymore how often are we all in one room so having the ability to trust within our departments that everybody has the very best uh intentions and everybody has the best ideas to execute and the the support of ownership to go do those things Act in real time, make sure that we over-communicate with each other, but, but be fine with the, the collective group, everybody collaborating to come up with results. It's so much better than just the idea of one person, and we're all waiting for the meeting to start, and they're going to tell us how to do it, and we walk out with our assignments. That's not what I'm all about. I definitely want to involve everybody in every decision that we do. But understand that these are real decisions, and, and there's not there's a big difference between an opinion and being actively involved in something. Because when, when you know they say you don't seek advice from somebody that doesn't have to live with the uh, result, right? right. I, I think everybody has skin in the game in this, and I think I have a great group of people that were already here, and we added a great group of people. So I, I look at this as a, as a kitchen cabinet. We, we have a cabinet group of people that really are fantastic, diverse backgrounds, diverse experiences, and the ideas that can be generated simply because we all have 
different areas of life that we've been in, I think that's the best way to get better quicker. I think sometimes you can get really mundane if you just surround yourself with, okay, well, we've only going to done it this way in the NBA. We're only going to do it this way. You know, if things were only done one way, you know, we'd still be leeching. We'd still be amputating in medical. We'd still be doing crazy things in basketball. I, one of the biggest influences I've ever had uh, being around was, was my time in Denver with Mike D'Antoni. He showed me a whole different way of playing basketball, and I love that vision back in the 90s and now it's the rage in the NBA but I was also you know a guy that's a surrogate father to me to this day Bernie Bakerstaff gave me my first job in Denver and his influence on me in team building and his ability to see past you know if you go back to that 94 team it was the first time I ate ever beat a one and look at some of the players on that roster they were castaway players they were players that failed other places there's always something there's always a value to every single player it's up to us to find out what it is but we have to establish a criteria of who's going to play for the Washington Wizards. And it's not just one person that can dictate that. So the collaborative effort of everybody, I think it just makes us a better opportunity to bring better players to D.C. and retain them, develop them, and I, I think make them really pillars in the community. That's the, the ultimate idea here is to be successful on and off the court. We're in district, uh, we're in Ward 8 right now where we've got a lot of people that we, I think we can inspire and help that, that, that area of town rise them up. And, and that's going to come through basketball, certainly, but it's going to become by the inspiration we can give to the youth and the people in that community. Hey, Tommy, if, if somebody sat in on your pre-draft process in spring of 2019, all the way up to the draft, what, what would have looked different in the process, in mm-hmm. the evaluation, in how decisions were being made, how players are being eliminated uh, from the decision-making process? Well, I think one of the first things that we did, we, we decided, hey, let's take a far more analytic approach to, to evaluating players. And we have fantastic people in our analytics area with Brett Greenberg and, and Joe Sill certainly were at the forefront of, of identifying certain algorithms that we could use that just really, look, it's a fancy way of saying who makes winning plays and who has a resume of making winning plays at both ends of the court. And there's ways to evaluate a player that don't involve the box score. And it was up to them to kind of develop a criteria. So now you have your data driven and you add to that the value driven by that. I mean, your resume as a character, as a human being, as a practice player, as a game player, as a student on campus, how you interact with everybody uh, that you come in, in contact with on campus away from campus, hotels, airports, you know, the places that you get information from, uh, are, they're endless. <laughs> how they interact with the media, how they treat ball kids, all those things come into play when you're evaluating somebody. So if you came into our meetings in the spring, yeah, there was a lot more being discussed around data for sure. And I think that helped us sort out who not to look at simply because there's, there's certain criteria that, hey, if you don't have this, we can show you no player in the NBA has ever played a game that was below this line. Let's call it the Mendoza line for lack of a better term. Right. And to waste time arguing about a player that has no demonstrated resume that's below that line is fruitless. That's time well wasted. So let's have time well spent. Let's look at players that, that gave us, by eliminating a whole bunch of players, it gave us more time to focus on the players we were interested in. And I think we arrived where we arrived as a group because we had the analytic area, the data area driven, uh, that was covered, the value driven piece with the backgrounds that we were able to do, the cognitive testing that we do. That's simply how do you learn? How can we coach you better? 
the background checks and certainly the medical screening, those five pieces call come together. And that that's what allows you access to become a Washington wizard. And I think being a lot more, I, I hate the word process. I really do. I think it's overused. But that was kind of how we went about our business. And I think that's we're going to continue to expound on that moving forward. Tommy, when you have to make decisions as an interim GM that may be long-term resets for an organization, that you're doing it with the understanding that you might not be here for it. Um, they, they're interviewing other candidates. Maybe they've offered the job somewhere else. Maybe somebody's turned it down. Maybe um, it, the process is going along. Was it clear to you that to do the job, it, it, it wasn't necessarily about, l- let me just try to cobble together the best team I can for this coming season, that I've got to do this thing. Because you made, you know, Thomas Sadoransky, who'd been a good player for you, and you wanted to keep him at the right number. And in the past, sometimes, you know, Washington overpaid for guys that maybe they either to bring him in or maybe to keep him. And you drew a line in a way, and I noticed some agents say it. Well, we usually could get paid in Washington. Um, <laughs> you still can. <laughs> um, but some of those decisions to, again, draw, draw a line and say, maybe we take a step back in the short term to take, to, to clear the books, to clear the deck, to gather some more assets. And you did. You gathered up picks, um, prospects, you know, prospects, and you did it without the knowledge of whether you'd be able to, be around to see them develop. Yeah, I, I don't think you can ever be in like self survival mode in this in this setting because of what the challenge was given to me by Mr. Leonsis was hey put something together that we we think can be sustainable and do a good job with it and I think that was all I needed to know was that hey I have an opportunity to be involved in this but I also understood the entire time hey the rest of the basketball world's got eyes on this and how would it look if I was just trying to save my own neck. You know, the decisions you make, if they're the right decisions, they'll speak for themselves in time. And I'm willing to take the risk because I thought those were all the right things to do, not just for Tommy Shepard, but for everyone in this organization. And I think that's where the Ted's commitment was fantastic. You know, I, I can clearly remember the day when he, when he asked me to do this, obviously, and I can clearly remember every moment of interaction since then. There was never one time, hey, I want you to do this. This is what you have to do. It was like, what do you think? Show me the plan. Show me the structure. Show me how you're going to execute it, and you can do whatever it is that you need that you see fit. And the first real big challenge, honestly, was in free agency because the temptation to reassemble. You know, those are quality players that left here, and I, I really each one has a story. Each one took a piece of my heart when they left. You know, you really get close to players in this business. But one thing that was told to me: it's okay to love players. It's, it's not okay to be in love with players. You can't let it blind you to the business of basketball. And when 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 a price point got too high we had to have a, a financial discipline to know that hey in the future this could really affect what we're trying to do and most of the players that left here they got great contracts they did but they're short-term contracts so if we had done those here we'd be right back where we were mm-hmm. in a year we'd be right back where we were this summer if I, oh my, are we keep doing this all over again and that just didn't appeal to me and i don't think that was wise for the long-term health of the franchise and and so what we were able to do this summer Hey, that was great for us. I don't look to be applauded. We don't need to be graded. Grades always should come two, three years after the trades or after the draft, after free agency, as opposed to within 24 hours. I don't think that's ever been uh, very beneficial for people. But the best thing I can say about going through that entire deal is that it felt very natural. It was very much of a of a group setting where 
everybody was so involved and it wasn't rehearsed. We, we, we really felt like everything that was going according to plan. We, we, we took some shots. We took some tough hits uh, and you turn around and, and you pivot and you keep moving forward. And that's why I was so proud of this group. The, the idea of collaboration and what that means in the end, you, you're going to make decisions. Uh, you're the final decision maker. I mean, ultimately the owner, owner is a final decision Certainly. maker, right? Ted Leone but, but you're the general manager and there's a moment of truth where you've got to pull the trigger on a trade or draft night or, uh, making decisions on staff. What does it mean in this world to collaborate? I do think there's, there's been a realization some places got it sooner than others that this job is big, <laughs> yeah, right? Really is. And, and that a general manager, um, you know, I thought the Clippers front office and the way they've reshaped and rebuilt their roster, you know, you saw like lots of quality people brought in, maybe not as much centralized, you know, Lawrence Frank's in charge, but Balmers and see Balmers involved and they're going to listen to their coach, Doc Rivers. It, it, it feels like more and more that what you've done in Washington is, a recognition around the league that, man, there's a lot to this and there's a lot to do in this well. Absolutely. And the time spent and the time lost, if you're trying to just be a, a team of one, is wasted time. I think the, the most important thing when you're looking at big decisions, the big moments, as Ted likes to say, is know that you prepared and you have plan A, B, C, D, all the way through the alphabet because things happen. The best laid plans this summer. Look how many teams planned for a certain player this summer and they didn't get that. So they had to pivot quickly. And I think being able to have in real time access to the best in- intel, the very best information to make these decisions, that's what's critical. And that only comes from having more people involved in the process of gathering it, having more people involved in the process of reading that intel, reading that data and telling us, Hey, these are, these are manageable outcomes. And then being able to have the, the resources and the support of ownership, that's the critical, critical piece. And I think the teams that were successful this summer are the ones that have the very best ownership, the leadership on top, because we know all the people in the league. I don't think anybody comes in this wanting to fail. There's very successful people in the NBA. Uh, I think the succession plan is always in place, and they, the organizations grow leaders. In other places, they just haven't adapted to the times. And I think what we're, we're trying to get to – here in Washington, it's going to be much quicker than people may realize just because of the resources that we've been uh, afforded by our ownership group. If the Wizards are run right in Washington, D.C., should this be a destination organization in the NBA? Oh, 1,000%. I think it always has been. You know, I, I heard people say in the past, well, they haven't attracted free agents. Well, you know, I, I don't know. Bradley Beal resigned here. John Wall resigned here. Marching Gortat when he was here. Uh, Markeith Morris, we, we had a lot of players that re-upped with us, and I think those are huge free agents because at that time they were some of the top players in the marketplace, and we were attracted. Uh, we've been able to attract free agents here over the years for for a very long time, but now with this in place and and being able to manage our message out there to the basketball world that this is what we have available. It's world class, one of a kind, three sixty opportunity for you as a person to be better and to sustain and to prolong your career, I think that's what is exciting, and that's going to be world-class. That's what we're going to have to blast up from the mountaintops to show the NBA this is the place. Washington, D.C. is a destination 100%. John Wall's rehab in Florida, you normally might think he's isolated, he's away from the organization, He's, um, but he, <laughs> there's a level of scrutiny going on with, um, with his rehab process. I know Ted joked about... Um, 
you know, every morning he's replaced the Washington Post with uh, <laughs> emails, video, uh, evaluation of what John's doing. Um, is that just vital player of the investment you have in him? He's, he's your highest paid player, one of the highest paid players in the league. And then, of course, an all-star guard and an injury combined with an injury as serious as the one he has, that, that, that it's got to be part of your daily routine. Well, I think over-communicating is what I want to be accused of. And making sure, you know, our ownership group made a huge investment in John, and he could not have ever asked for that injury to happen. But we certainly can manage the outcomes the best as possible by making sure he has the very best uh, plan in place to get back to the floor. And it takes 100% participation on his part, but it takes 100% participation on our part to make sure he has the very best health care and the plan in place and the, the progress that he makes. And sharing in those successes with, with Ted every day, that's that's part of this process you go through when when you're trying to bring a player back to the court. Uh, you got to celebrate. You got to manage the disappointments. There's tough days, you know, the mundane, monotony approach of rehab, especially to an Achilles injury. You know, every day looks the same for a couple, three, four, five months in a row, and that's really difficult for somebody as competitive as John Wall. And I think the the necessity for John to see that we are paying attention because we care about him. The person, the player that came to D.C. as a five-time All-Star, was on All-NBA, that's committed so much money and time to this, not just this city, not just this franchise, but around the, the basketball globe and what he does with his grassroots team and what he's done in Raleigh, what he's done for, for single mothers, all the different things that John does. It's not just about putting that ball through the hoop. It's, it's the person that we care about. And I think when he sees the support from us, it, it, it really does push him up another notch in his ability to get back to the court because he loves basketball, sure, but I think he also wants to show, hey, I appreciate all the things that you've done for us. I'm a partner with you in this. He's not just out there, you know, uh, unchecked in the in the basketball summer. Does John need people? Does he need to have somebody on top of him? Is he's is he a player? Not every, you know, it, like you said, it is monotonous. Rehab of that injury is difficult. Um, but is is John a player who an organization has to stay on more than, than maybe someone else? Well, I think. I think every single athlete needs somebody supervision-wise to make sure they're doing all the things that they need to do, but certainly to be there to manage the difficult times. And, and so I wouldn't put John any different than any other athlete in the NBA. The tough times come when you're by yourself, away from the crowd, away from your team, and you're doing a 100 toe raises, and you're, you're trying to spell the alphabet with your toes, and there's two people in the room. And this guy's played in front of sold-out crowds in the playoffs. He's been in all-star games, and now he's he's performing in front of a physical therapist, you know, in the middle of nowhere sometimes. That's that's a difficult emotion for a player to channel. And, and being able to see yourself back on the floor, knowing that, hey, sometimes this injury takes over a year to get to. So I think it doesn't make John Wall any different. I do think what we want to make sure he understands is how important he is to this franchise. And the only way you can do that is with the old, you know, TIME and being able to have conversations every day. And I, not just with myself, not just with Scotty Brooks, not just with his teammates. Ted Leonsis is calling him. He's down there. He, he went to see John. John's been to his house. That's a level of commitment and interest that I think John recognizes. Hey, everybody's watching. Everyone's counting on me. And I want him to feel that a little bit that, hey, this, this business for me, as a player coming back, it affects so many lives. And I want him to know 
that we care so deeply about him as a person, certainly. But the business end of this is, hey, we need you back, and we need you to be as good of a player as you can possibly be. We're going to give you all the resources, and we need you to be 100% compliant. And he's done that. I think anybody that's seen John out and about over the summer, you know, he, he was able to introduce Bradley Beal at the NBA awards ceremony and how much pride that gave us. And I think people were taken aback. He looked great. And it's scary to watch his workouts because we, we had him in Vegas and people were looking at him on the floor and they said, wow, is he going to play in preseason? I mean, <laughs> it's how quickly he looks great and how skilled he is as a player. But there's no calendar and there's no clock that's going to tell us when John's coming back. What's going to happen is when he's a hundred percent. And even the, the additions today with, with, with Danny, I think our medical staff now is to be able to really save a player from himself because John's one of those players, he will sneak out on the layup line if he's 50%. He wants to play that badly, and the investment alone tells you that we can't allow that to happen. He has to be 100% healthy, and I think the medical staff will do whatever it takes to get him back to the court. But I think John is by far the biggest critic of himself, and he wants to get back to where he was. And, you know, there's only one way to do that is to do this and be compliant with everything. So I, I can't say enough about his participation this summer, and he knows where what he needs to do. I think the race is on. You know, obviously KD had a devastating injury in, in, the, in the finals, and it's a very similar injury to what John went through. So he's got a soulmate right there that he can talk to. And some of the most – common places for that injury to happen are in the NFL. They're in, in in European football. So now look at the experts that we added today. There's more people that can can relate to John's injury and help us and make sure that we have the best people. And then, you know, I go back to the addition of Isaiah Thomas. As a player for us, that's a no-brainer. But the empathy he can give John from having an injury happen and change and take the game away from you. You know, Isaiah's walked that walk. So I think having people like that serve John as well as our medical staff. Having the ability to, to have someone to talk to that's been through that, like Isaiah, that was tremendous for us. Tommy, for a punter from New Mexico State. <laughs> hey, no, no, I was an ass back. I was a defensive back. I tried to get on the field. Coach said, hey, get your ass back here. I wasn't a punter. <laughs> I, I, I spent a lot of time punt with the punters. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, I will clarify that. Uh, your history with becoming part of the global game and, and really – at the forefront with Cernus Marcellonis, uh, you know, all the way back there, you know, even before your your days at UNLV and PR and with the Nuggets. I know that for Ted Leonsis, making the Wizards feel more like an organization that was embracing the global games, whether it's scouting and, and having the ability, which you have, to go to a lot of places uh, around the world, um, know the guy know who's in the gym, know where to get information, know where to get accurate information, more importantly. Um, Ted, Ted had said to me that that was a big part of this and that, that your background. Um, but you started internationally, you know, really in a little bit of a roundabout way, right? Absolutely. I think my very first exposure to it was actually in, in – it goes back to the 96 Olympics, and I was working for the USOC, and we had a Greek player for the Denver Nuggets. We drafted a kid at the time, Athemius Rentius. And he happened to be playing for Greece in the, at the Olympics. So I got the opportunity to go over and introduce myself to him. That's the first time I really got a chance to meet him. And, and 96 was transformative for me because also that time we had a player in Denver, Mahmoud abdul Rauf, and we made a big trade, and we traded him for Sarunas Marcellonis. Well, now I have two players at the Olympics, and I had an opportunity to go and introduce myself on behalf of the Denver Nuggets and give them the welcome, uh, the welcome mat that they needed and deserved. But then Bernie Bickerstaff hey, at the time said, hey, 
don't you do some scouting reports while you're there? Why don't you watch these games and tell me what you see? And the, the partnership I made with Sharunas at that time, I didn't realize I was meeting my brother for the rest of my life, uh, working with him in 96. And, and every day since, he's been somebody that's so influential in my life and being able to send scouting reports back and people would read them. And um, I, I think that started the interest. And then it just took off. And being able to, with Sharunas, we put a league together, a pan-European league that ended up uh, being a model for, for what FIBA ended up doing with FIBA Europe. And, you know, those those opportunities, they don't seem big at the moment. They just seem like something you just love and you're pursuing what you love. And I remember traveling the globe and seeing you at the same places, the World Championships and the Olympic Games. And those, those games are as intense as anything I've ever been part of. Probably more intense than some NBA Finals games, if you can believe that, just because of what's at stake. It's once every four years. It's 40 minutes. It's a FIBA ball and three FIBA refs and everything that can happen <laughs> with that. And yeah. the country's uh, pride is at stake. And those games are so, so meaningful. And I think that took that to heart. And, and now I look back on it. And I've been involved with players from uh, well over 25 international players in my time. And every one of them a special story something about them and it helped me teach my kids geography they all know where players are from based on you know they look at the world map and say oh basketball okay and they know where players are from simply because of what i do uh, but the international the global game that's where it's at and I, i'd say it over and over again we haven't checked a passport yet we haven't checked a uh a driver's license yet we, we don't care how old you are where you're from if you can play you can stay but certainly we cast a much wider net now in the NBA going global. Uh, Ernie Accorsi, who was the general manager of the Giants and uh, Baltimore Colts, said to me he had started on the PR side um, in pro sports and uh, immersed himself in, pers- in, in the scouting process, wanted to make the trans- make that transformation over, and all- still would always get sort of the you know the raised eyebrows from the guys who had been career basketball guys. I remember he said to me once, Hey, listen, it takes seven years to learn to become a doctor. <laughs> I really believe you can learn how to scout and learn talent in a, in a window of seven years. If seven, if it takes seven years to learn how to do open heart surgery, uh, from the beginning of college through med school, what was that transformation like? And what was it like in the league where, you know, you came in, you were, you were the PR director in Denver and SID at UNLV. And then you, you went over to player services and then you, you slowly made move and you came to Washington. In, in a front office role? Well, I think I was a benefactor at that time of very small, we, we were very small productions in the NBA back then. Front offices had four or five people. So there was a ton of, tons and tons of jobs that never got done and that needed to be done. And I was a benefactor of that with Bernie Bickerstaff. I, I remember he allowed me to go watch high school games because nobody was doing reports on that. We didn't have anything on that, but yet I got to go down and watch G-Dub play in Denver, and there was a great little guard there by the name of Chauncey Billups and got a chance to do reports on Chauncey back in the day and watch some CBA games because we didn't have anybody on staff that could do that. Mm-hmm. And if there's jobs that aren't getting done, you can take those on, and if you screw them up, no one's going to say anything anyway, right? But it gave me a chance to grow and the responsibility that was added. And so, you know, when I got to UNLV, you know, meeting Coach Tarkanian, that was transformative in my life. Particularly, you get a chance to work with one of the greatest coaches of all time, but also because of his staff. And Tim Gergerich, who to this day is by far my biggest basketball influence and, and life coach that I've ever been around, helped me really learn how to 
not even just evaluate talent for NBA, for college, for everything else, but also how to treat every player and how to motivate and how to get the very best out of people. I, I follow what K- Coach Gerg taught me. And then Roley Massimino came into my life and his staff and the people that were there, you know, we were in such a small basketball community, the small world that we live in where, you know, one of his assistants was Jay Wright. Our manager was Brett Gunning. Well, you know, I interact with those guys all the time. Tom Pecora. We have fantastic staffs back then, and I see all those people to this day. What did you learn about crisis management at UNLV, <laughs> right? That, that's got to prepare you for something, right? Every day yeah, was a crisis. Absolutely. When, when when the crazy becomes normal, that's what I always <laughs> refer back to those times. You You don't know it until you step away and realize, hey, other athletic departments don't have their own lawyers come to every staff meeting and you know the team the the school president doesn't film your basketball coaches basketball classes <laughs> you, know, you you thought that was kind of how it was supposed to be but honestly I, I think crisis management pr we're all in that we're in that business to this day and if we don't believe that you're you're kidding yourself i think the most important thing to for a properly functioning franchise is for everybody to recognize our fiduciary responsibility to ownership but really our our responsibility to our fans to put the best team out there and i don't think anybody cares if you played 25 30 years ago it's about what you can produce today how can you help this franchise get better and that's how we evaluate people and that's how i was always evaluated the transformation for me was easy which because i you know i was a college athlete but i played basketball my whole life and i i think when i got the opportunity to be at new mexico state in football wasn't so good. We weren't a very good team, but we had a great basketball team. Actually, uh, you know, Johnny Roberson, jumping Johnny Roberson, running around with the with the Aggies back then, and lo and behold, years later, there's Andre Roberson. His son pops up in the NBA. It's the circle of life that keeps coming up time and time again. But that experience with with Aggie basketball led to me working at UNLV and all the people we already discussed, and that got me in front of the Nuggets, and that got me to the Washington Wizards. And I think all those experiences you look back on, even the smallest experiences that we laugh about to this day, they were very transformative. And the ability, I think, for anybody to make a difference in our business just comes back by how hard you're willing to work, how much you're willing to learn, and how much you can bring to the organization. You, you mentioned the influence Mike D'Antoni had on you in Denver. And Mike will talk about when he started there, he wasn't ready to go all in on what he really believed in. What, what do you remember about where he was in terms of what he thought the NBA could take or what he thought he could um, – he was an interim coach. And can I go all in on this style that I want to bring from Italy with me, but I'm not quite sure I can really sell it here? Yeah, I, I think it's you, – you never want to live life with regret. I think if Mike would, was sitting here, he would tell you, I think he wanted to go back to that team. And unfortunately, it was a lockout shortened season. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have an opportunity to maybe have that training camp that you really need to put in a style of play. But I think at that time – Mike definitely didn't want to, to to really shake the NBA up on its ear because there was still it's so new back then to think of somebody coming from Europe implementing a style of play completely different than the way the NBA was and and thinking it was just going to be cool and be normal because it wasn't at that time the the great players in the league were all in the post and the great scorers and they were not <laughs> the, the 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 ilk of the, some of the players that Mike had certainly in Phoenix and in Houston and other places he's been at that time the the game was ugly it was getting you know defenses were were the kings and what Mike was able to do later on in life I think he could have done at that time in the NBA we didn't have enough talent 
but the wisdom, the way he wanted, the, the vision of the way the game was being played in his mind back then, certainly I think if we could have stayed at it, it would have been successful then because it's, it's successful now. It just takes somebody really doing it. And I think every great idea starts out as heresy, right? And, but as you look forward and you start to realize that how beautiful the game is when the ball moves and great shooting should matter and defenses shouldn't be allowed to tackle someone and clothesline someone and hand-checking got out of control, when you free up the ability for players to be creative. It's a, such a fantastic game to watch. And I think Mike knew that then, and now he's been recognized for bringing that offensive firepower to the NBA and that philosophy, but I think it could have worked back then too. Tommy, you and your wife, Rosie, seven children. Yes, sir. Five girls, two boys. How can a general manager in the NBA raise seven How do you do that? You marry a saint, which I was able to do. <laughs> And they married me, not, you know, my wife married me, not my job. My kids, they really don't, at the end of the day, when I go home, it's never about the Wizards. It's always about what can we do as a family? How can we make this time count? Because you can't really sit around counting the time. You know, I have a, a work life that's very time intensive, and I got to make sure I have enough when I get home to spend that, that equal amount of energy with my family. And then I'm going to be honest right here, a lot of nights they lose. A lot of nights we give more time to our teams than we do to our families. And, it, and every time you say we're going to do better, something else seems to come up. But I think the family life, the home balance, to have the, the, the situation in life that I've been blessed with, it allows me to be very good at what I do at my office, in my office life, because of the support I have at home. Um, I, I tell you what, one thing that the, I think the toughest job in the world is the one that you don't need a license, a certificate, a degree, a diploma for, is to, is to have a child and to raise children. And you would think you would have to have at least a doctorate to be even able to have a child, and yet we have them uh, all over. And I think for me, the ability to, to raise children and, and what it takes to have a happy home, I can take so many of those lessons and apply them here at work. And I always tease players, look, I don't take that crap off my kid. I'm not going to take it <laughs> off of you. And I think we can laugh about it. And, you know, when Bradley came in, John came into the league, they were young men. And now they both have sons and we can bond over raising children and talking about feeding at 3 a.m. a lot as easy and comfortably as we do. How are we going to stop the Rockets? How are we going to beat Toronto? You know, those conversations now, they're, they're so much funner and more fulfilling for me to watch those guys that came in the league as young men. Now they're, they're grownups with families and we have a lot more in common. And, and the gap, the age gap from oldest to youngest with you is what now? So 23 down to seven. And okay. it's a, it's a heck of a gap, but it, it, I tell you what's so neat about our opportunity, the, the life that this has been afforded to us as a family in the NBA is, is so many friends that you meet and all around the globe. My children have been exposed, a lot of it because of basketball, but they've been exposed to people from all kinds of walks of life, all kinds of cultures everywhere around the world. And I think it's made them much more well-rounded, more worldly. And I have basketball to thank. Tommy, uh, I have you to thank for a great uh, 45 minutes here. I, you got to be all talked out today. You've done a lot of talking. Appreciate you spending <laughs> spending a little bit of time here. As they were saying earlier, I think if I got paid by the word, I'd be Warren Buffett today. <laughs> but I, I really enjoy this opportunity today to, to, to be with everybody. And as we show the NBA what we're all about here moving forward, it's our responsibility. And I appreciate this opportunity to come on with you. Thanks, Tommy. Thank you.